turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Many of you know of our partnership with the Tomashek people in Africa, an unreached people, and not only our partnership through the giving of money to our missionaries there, but also uh, our partnership in going to encourage the missionaries and to assist them in their ministry, uh, making disciples among those peoples. Uh, I've had the great privilege of being there three times, and the first time was probably the most unique, uh, just in the sense of uh, being experience, uh, having my first experiences with uh, third world African culture. Uh, previously, I had experiences in third world South American culture, but very, very different. And the second week of that trip, the missionaries took me out to the bush. We don't often talk about the bush in this country. We talk about the boonies, though, and that's basically the African bush. Uh, it's a place where uh, very often there uh, may not be running water. There may not be uh, indoor plumbing. There may not be electricity. And when there is electricity, it is spotty and inconsistent at best. And so uh, we were out there for teaching, and the first night uh, that we were there, we arrived at uh, our guest's uh, home who was going to kind of sponsor us there, a believer, and his wife was providing meals for us. And so we went to his house and, and stayed late in the night talking with him and rejoicing in the things of God. And then the next night, uh, he brought dinner with him along with some men who wanted to hear the Word of God read to them and explained to them. And some of the boys came along as well. And as the sun began to go down and the teaching was concluded and we were eating dinner, uh, uh, like most boys even here who go out camping at night, the flashlights came out. But these were African flashlights using African batteries and uh, were pretty dim by the comparisons of our flashlights here. And so, uh, like all good boys, I went and got my flashlight. A flashlight not made in Africa, probably made in China. Nevertheless, it ran on good uh probably made in China as well, but good Duracell batteries. And so when I turned on my mini mag light, the, the brightness of the intensity was unlike anything these guys had seen from a flashlight before. It wasn't as if before that moment they thought that their flashlights were inferior, that they were no good, uh, that they didn't do their job well. They did do their job well in as far as the technology and the design allowed it. But suddenly when I pulled out my even brighter flashlight, theirs clicked off and quickly went away as I passed mine around and they got to play with it. That's a nice memory for me. It was an opportunity, though not speaking the language, to make a connection to a people on something as common as boys wanting to have fun. And yet, it also, I hope, illustrates the point of our text this morning. Luke's Gospel is written by a man named Luke, oddly enough, to a man named Theophilus. And he is wanting to show... Theophilus, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, that those who put faith in Jesus for salvation have good re reason to do so, that the realities of Christianity are rooted in the historical workings of God. These are not just made-up stories. These are real events. He also wants to show them that, unlike what many were saying of the day, Christianity did not stand at odds, was not hostile to Judaism. It was, in fact, the organic God-intended fulfillment of that old covenant system of, work, uh, of worship to God. So far as we have been reading through the Gospel of Luke and uh, expounding it during these times, we have seen the Old Testament world in the opening 
years of the New Testament. We have seen men and women seeking to live devout lives before God, trusting Him and His Word, living according to His law. And it's in the midst of that world that God came and has now revealed more glorious promises. And the birth of two sons, Jesus, God's own son, and John, the one who was to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry as Savior. And what Luke shows is that in the coming of Christ, there is a coming of greater glory for God's people. Again, those, those boys in Africa had no concept that their flashlight was not good. It, it was good for what it was designed to be. It did its job. Likewise, the Old Covenant is not, is not unglorious. The old covenant that God gave to Israel is not bad. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. And yet part of what it was supposed to do was to shine its light forward to a greater light that was to come. The glory of the old covenant was glorious, but it was a limited glory. In fact, it was a dim glory in light of the coming glory of Christ. The covenant established with Israel by God was there to reveal God to Israel. It was there that he might dwell in their midst. It was there to provide a context for sacrifices and atonement that was necessary for a holy God to live in the midst of a sinful people. But now that fading light of the old covenant glory was fading even more quickly as the greater, brighter glory of Christ and his new covenant was shining forth into the world. This is what we see in our passage this morning. It begins just after Jesus has been born. Passage we looked at right before Christmas. Jesus born in the manger. Shepherds gathered to worship. Myriads of angels rejoicing in the heavens. And we pick up our story right after that in verse 21. We will finish chapter 2 today, but we begin with just the first scene. And here we see Luke saying this. At the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. May God bless the reading of his word. As we think about the greater glory of Christ as he fulfills the glory of the old covenant, we first see the reality that Jesus fulfills the righteousness of the law. Jesus fulfills the righteousness of the law. This truth is seen throughout the New Testament, but here it begins not with what Jesus himself does, but what his parents do to him. Our passage opens with a short but clear display of Jesus fulfilling covenant righteousness. Covenant righteousness. We read in 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You'll remember that God sent his messenger, his angel to Mary and to say, you are going to have a son. It's going to happen because God's spirit is going to overshadow you and create life in your womb and you will name this baby Jesus. And what we see is Mary and Joseph obeying that directive, that command, believing that God is doing this work, giving this son the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. But they also obey God by keeping his law and having Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. This was God's covenant sign to Israel. 
with a quick cut of the knife, Jesus' blood was first shed, and now he was sealed as a member of the covenant community of Israel. This was not something that Israel took lightly. It was not something that was just kind of a thing in Israel. It was the only thing commanded by God clearly that you could break the Sabbath to do. If the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, it didn't matter. All the Sabbath rules were thrown out the window so that the parents could come and have their child circumcised, making him part of the covenant people of God. In fact, do you remember Moses in Exodus 4? Moses, who was called by God through the burning bush to go to Israel, to speak to Pharaoh in Egypt and say, let my people go that they might serve me. He's the one who received the law on Sinai, who would lead Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Yet in Exodus 4, Moses could not bring himself to circumcise his own son. Such was the inappropriateness, the offensiveness of that to God. That the text says that the Lord was about to break out upon Moses and kill him. This is Exodus 4. We're barely getting started in the story. And yet God took it so seriously as a sign of his covenant people that that, that he is about to kill Moses. And in fact, Moses' wife goes in and does the job. She snips the foreskin and throws the bloody mess of flesh at Moses' feet. Essentially saying, this is the very thing that you should have been doing. And when you didn't, you threatened God's wrath on all of us. Now, as a side note, man, there's a lesson there. Don't rely on your wife to do your job before God for the family. But more than that, it shows the seriousness with which this obedience to covenant faithfulness was taken by God. Mary and Joseph obey the law of God. They obey because they believe in the covenant that God has established with his people. Jesus is now a child of Abraham, a son of the Mosaic covenant. He is a true Israelite fulfilling covenant righteousness. We also see in Jesus the fulfillment of cleansed righteousness, of cleansed righteousness. Luke says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, what is this time of purification? Well, if you're with us on community groups on Sunday night, you know well now what that time of purification is. That law is found in the book of Leviticus, which we're studying now. And there we see that after giving birth to a child, the mother, specifically a son, the mother is ritually unclean for seven days and then must remain at home for a, for a further 33 days before venturing to the temple in Jerusalem to offer her sacrifice and to be ritually cleansed. Now, what was to be the offering? There were actually two, a lamb as a burnt offering and a dove As a sin offering. Now that begs the question, what is sinful about giving birth? Why is there ritual impurity? Why does cleansing need to take place? It may seem odd that God says you've got to offer this sin offering when, when people are simply obeying the command, the very first command ever recorded for humanity in the Bible. You know what it is? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go out, get married, have babies. That was God's first command. And incidentally, to, to couples today who, who want to put that off and to feel like, you know, I'm not sure I want kids. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I want that burden. I'm not sure I want that responsibility. I just want to have fun and live my life and, and pursue my career. I would say God has never renounced that command. It is still his first and best will for your life. And if you are unable to do that, he has, he has allowed a myriad of orphans in this world that he has set the pattern for adoption and adopting us 
as his sons, that we might go out and adopt them as well. Nevertheless, the question still remains, what is sinful about bearing a child? Well, the offerings were not given because the wife has done something sinful. The offering is given because the child was sinful. Presumably, it's not made explicit in Scripture, but presumably, in the fullness of God's revelation, what made the mother impure was the guilt of her child's sin inherited from Adam like every other person. But even then, that's kind of a problem here, right? Because Jesus didn't inherit Adam's sin. From birth, he has been sinless, conceived by God's Holy Spirit. Jesus was a normal boy, but he was more than a normal boy. He was God in the flesh. He was completely without sin, either Adam's imputed sin or actual sin of his own. But Mary and Joseph couldn't comprehend that. There's no way for them to understand that at this time. They were simply obeying the law of God. And yet even here we see the beginnings of the ministry of Jesus. He is born as one under the law that he might fulfill it. And having fulfilled it fully, he was able to substitute himself, bearing our sin under God's wrath that we might be not just ritually cleansed, but truly and actually cleansed by God for our sins and forgiven. Jesus fulfills covenant righteousness, a cleansed righteousness, and we also see, thirdly, a consecrated righteousness. A consecrated righteousness. Luke says, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now again, what's going on here? What is this, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord? Well, Luke is quoting from Exodus 13, and he is reminding his Jewish readers who are familiar with the Old Testament or his Gentile readers who have no idea about the Old Testament that under God's covenant with Israel, God claimed the right to the life of every firstborn in Israel. However, unlike some pagan religions that required the firstborn to, be go, to go and to be offered and to actually be killed to that God, God allows each family to keep their son. All they need to do is acknowledge his rule over their lives and his grace in giving them that firstborn in their lives by offering a sacrifice. And Luke points out that Mary and Joseph cannot offer the full animal sacrifices that were supposed to be offered because of their poverty. Nevertheless, they take advantage of God's mercy in the law, giving an alternative to those who are poor, to pigeons instead. And this is helping us to understand, isn't it, the humility of Christ's incarnation. He wasn't born into a family of power. He wasn't born among the elite, but the lowest of the low. Why? That he might identify with all of God's people. That all that he would stand in place of and bear the sin for. More than that, though, this points to the life that Jesus would live for his people. What Jesus did in bringing him to the temple to be presentable for the Lord was actually above and beyond what the law required. The law only required a sacrifice. The child didn't even have to be there for that. But they've done more than redeem their son through the offering. They have dedicated him to the Lord's service. This does not only speak to the piety of Mary and Joseph and their love for God, but also for the kind of life that Jesus himself would live. 
It will become very clear in the next few chapters as we continue working through Luke that Jesus himself is willingly dedicated to serving the Lord, his heavenly Father. He understands who he is, that God is his Father, that he has come to be the promised Messiah. And he understands that part of his work as the Messiah is living a life full of righteousness to God and his law. Not for himself, but for us. For he fulfills in this one of the two great problems we have in our relationship with God. We've already seen the first, that we are born sinful and we make it plain from the earliest ages until our dying breath, that we are a sinful people. And that sin destroys our fellowship with God. Therefore, we need a redeemer. We need someone who will deal with the sin and the guilt that we can be forgiven, that we might be made right with God. Jesus is that redeemer. He takes our guilt and our sin for us. But that's only half the problem. The other half of the problem, the Bible says, is that without, without total righteousness, we will not have fellowship with God. So, so imagine that Jesus only comes as the Redeemer and the one who dies for our sins. We, we still cannot be friends with God because we still have a lack. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we live, no matter how hard we try, we will not achieve the perfect righteousness with which we will have fellowship with God. And Jesus meets this need as well. He comes and he lives a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He goes actively earning righteousness obediently, not for himself, but for us. So when we look to him as the Redeemer, as the Savior, we not only have our sin and guilt put on him, but God considers his righteousness, his obedience put on us. So that an exchange happens. He receives the guilt of our sin. We receive the righteousness of his life. And therefore, both needs are met and our fellowship with God is restored. Just as the Old Covenant was showing the righteousness of God, calling for the righteousness of God's people, Jesus comes and fulfills that righteousness. But secondly, Jesus also reveals the hope of salvation. Jesus reveals the hope of salvation. Luke says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem, verse 25, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Here we see that Jesus reveals the hope of salvation. And in these verses we see that this salvation is first of all an expected salvation. An expected salvation. We're told that Simeon was a righteous and devout man and that God had chose to bless him by somehow communicating to him, revealing to him, you're not going to die until you see the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that I am sending, that I've promised to send long ago into the world to save my people. And therefore... Just as the prophet Isaiah said that this coming Messiah would bring comfort to God's people, so Luke says he is waiting for that consolation of Israel. He is waiting for that comfort from God. Was this man a priest? Was, was he something else? We don't know. We're not told anything about this man, really. Uh, we, we assume he's old because he says basically in a few minutes, I'm ready to die. I've seen the salvation that God has come. I can't imagine at 35 saying that. But then again, I'm not Simeon. I'm not the one who has waited all of his life on the, uh, standing on the shoulders of, of, of centuries of, of promise to God's people waiting for the Messiah. Nevertheless, what we do know 
as at the same spirit who communicated to Simeon that he is going to see the Lord's anointed has also worked in him a godly character. He is one who is faithful to the promises of God, seeking the presence of God in his life. Therefore, Simeon stands like a sentry on the wall, standing guard over God's people. He is keeping watch until their king comes. He knows that Christ will come because God has promised it. And Simeon believes that God will keep his word. And God doesn't let him down. It's not just an expected salvation, but it's also a joyous salvation that Simeon sees. A joyous salvation. God's Spirit is somehow, again, we don't know how, He has revealed to Simeon somehow that he will not die until he sees the Christ, Israel's Messiah. And now it is that same Spirit who providentially is orchestrating events to make that happen. Verse 27, Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now put yourself in Simeon's place for a minute. If you were to receive the promise, if you were were on, on Simeon's side of the cross... You know, now, now, now we're, on, we're on the other side and we see things so much more clearly. We have the apostles who have, who have expounded the scriptures and explained the Old Testament scriptures so that we can see clearly how Christ came up with all of these things. But imagine that you're Simeon and God reveals to you, you will not die until you see my anointed, my Messiah, the Christ that you long for. What is he going to do? If it was me, I would certainly be studying the scriptures, all of the scriptures that talked about what the Messiah was going to be. So that, so that when he came, I, I would be able to, to, to see clearly, yes, 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 this is him, this is him, this is him. So, so what might he have studied? He would know that Christ was coming as king, reigning on David's throne, that he would be a prophet like Moses, that he would be a wonderful counselor, that he would be the prince of peace. And if God had really opened his eyes to see, he might know from Isaiah that this Messiah would be a suffering servant. Now, it may seem not immediately obvious to us, but when you think about all of those roles, king, prophet, counselor, prince, servant, All of those images are fulfilled specifically in biblical categories by a man. And I don't just mean a male, but a man, an adult male. And we can't know for sure. We can ask him one day in the new creation, but I don't think it necessarily would have ever occurred to Simeon that he was going to see a child. I I imagine Simeon believing that one day he would see this conquering king come riding into Jerusalem and declare war on the Romans. To, To lift out the sword and in the righteousness of God, to lead a rebellion of God's people, to purge the infidels from their land of promise, to restore true worship in Israel, and to reign in righteousness, bringing peace for God's people in the land. That is what I think he probably envisioned. And yet, suddenly, God's Spirit is directing him to the temple. And whether it is on the way in or, or whether it is, is on the way out, exactly the time we don't know, but, but here they are about to offer their doves and dedicate their child, and the Spirit re- reveals to Simeon, that baby is the Christ. 
that child is the promised Messiah that you have been waiting for. I don't know about you, but if some stranger walked up to me and said, can I hold your baby? The answer would be no. <laughs> no. I, 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 don't, I don't care how, how, how elderly, how sincere, how, but no. Not, not going to happen. And yet here, Simeon walks up to Mary and Joseph. And, and we're not told he asks. I, I would, you assume he does, although uh, if he's old, they certainly treat elders differently that back then. But however it is, he scoops up this baby Jesus in his arms and he begins to sing. He begins to sing. Do you realize that that's why the, the, the text is broken up in verse? It, it, it's not just, it's not just a, 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 some kind of formal uh, language or something cutesy for the text. It, it is to indicate Simeon is singing this song of praise to God and blessing on this child. Now his life is complete. He has joy. He only had one thing on his divinely given bucket list to see the Lord's Christ. And now that is complete. He says, well, my life is done. I, I, I can go on to my reward. I can lay down with my fathers. I have seen the Christ. I've seen the Messiah. I have held him in my arms. I've looked at his hair and his face. Maybe he heard him coo and he knows. I can depart in peace. What joy God is fulfilling his promises. The consolation of Israel is here. What kind of salvation is this? It is finally a universal salvation. A universal salvation. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon is holding the one that Israel has waited their entire life for. He is holding the Messiah, the means of salvation for his people. This salvation was prepared by God, meaning it's not something that they're going to do. It is something that God is doing for them. And he reveals that the salvation is a glorious light for the Jews, but it is a revelation for the Gentiles as well. It's said that during World War II, six pilots took off from an aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic to scout out for some enemy submarines. And yet while they were gone, the submarines were detected and the captain was forced to issue a blackout alarm. The ship went totally dark in the night and when the pilots tried to return, they could not find the ships. And so they radioed for light and they were told, we have a blackout. We cannot turn the lights on. They said, just give us one light. Just, just give us something to give us an idea of where the ship is that we can come and land. But they couldn't. And in fact, radio silence was eventually ordered. And those six pilots had to ditch into the icy ocean below, never to be seen again. It's a great picture of the world in which we live. A world that is filled with spiritual darkness. Darkness that cannot be lifted by anything that we do. A darkness that leads to certain death because of our sins. But Simeon says, God has shown a light into the darkness. God has shown a light bringing salvation through his own son. And Jesus is not simply a Messiah for his people Israel. He has prepared salvation for all people, men and women from every tribe, nation and language. It is for sinful men and women like you and for like me. Because of this, Jesus, we can experience salvation without being an Israelite, without having to keep the law, without having to, 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 to change anything about us in terms of our ethnicity and our background. We can come as a part of any people with any sin, 
And in him we find forgiveness, restored fellowship with God, and the power for a transformed life. So that whatever the background from which we come, those sins can be cleansed and purged and we can be made new. But this just doesn't happen. Not everyone actually sees the salvation of God. And therefore this leads us to the third way that Christ brings fulfillment to the old covenant. Jesus reveals the heart of the people. Jesus reveals the heart of the people. We just said that the salvation of Christ was universal, but do not understand what that means. What I mean by that, it does not mean everyone is saved. There are some that will say because Christ has come and because he has died and he is raised back to life that everyone's going to heaven. That there is a hell, but it will be empty. That's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Simeon says to Mary and Joseph, verse 34. Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from the hearts of many may be revealed. Jesus reveals the heart of the people because he reveals the faith for salvation. He reveals the faith for salvation. Jesus has come for the salvation of Israel and for all peoples, but notice that for which he's appointed the rising and the falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that is opposed. That is, he will be the one that will experience resistance as well as reveal one's true relationship with God. One of the things that Luke has as a theme throughout this, or throughout this letter is God's care and concern for the lowliest of his people. And one of the things that we see is this throughout the New Testament, but especially in Luke, is this great reversal. There is the rising and the falling of many. Many who, who they themselves believe and who the nation believes are in with God. They are spiritual leaders. They are, they are seemingly righteous before him. They will fall before Christ. And there are others that are the lowliest of the low, who apparently have not been blessed by God, who are not righteous, and yet they will rise because of Christ. Why? Because the world is divided along this single axis. Do you trust Christ to be your Savior or do you reject Him as your Savior? The Apostle Peter explains it this way. He says, Behold, quoting from, script from the Old Testament, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So Peter says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So for some, Jesus is the way to God. They will see him for who he is, this promised Messiah for all peoples, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, a cornerstone to be set as the foundation of their lives. But for others, Jesus is the way to hell. For they will refuse to believe that a poor Jewish carpenter could be the Son of God of the flesh and the only way of salvation. They won't put their trust in Jesus to save them. They will not stand firm on Jesus, but they will trip over him. He will not be a sign of hope, but he will become a rock of offense. In this way, Simeon said the Christ would reveal the hearts of people. Do you want to know what kind of person you are? Do you want to know what, where your eternal destiny lies? And what do you think of Jesus? My dad used to tell me that when I, you have conversations about spiritual things with people, that all kinds of topics are going to come up. All kinds of topics are going to come up. 
anything you can possibly imagine will come up and be brought into the realm of spiritual belief. But he says, he says, if you want to get, if you want to cut through that and get to the heart of the issue, John, always remember this one question. Who do you think Jesus is? What do you believe about him? Because that's the ultimate question, isn't it? Isn't that what Simeon is, is saying to us as well? The true thoughts of your heart will be revealed. The true nature of your relationship with God will be revealed in how you respond to Jesus. Jesus reveals faith for salvation, but he also reveals the pain of salvation. The pain of salvation. Simeon looks at Mary and says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now it's interesting that he blesses Mary and Joseph, but he specifically turns to Mary and tells this to her. Since Joseph is out of the picture by the time Jesus is into adulthood, most believe that he died at some point before Jesus began his ministry. And that seems to be borne out here. He won't be there to see Jesus begin his ministry with baptism as the Messiah, calling disciples to him. He will not be there to see Jesus' upbringing mocked and his parentage questioned. He won't be there as the religious leaders on the day call him insane and accuse him of being demon-possessed. He won't be there to see his adopted son hanging naked and beaten on a cross as the sky darkens and the fullness of God's wrath is poured out upon him for the sins of all those who would ever look to Christ in faith for salvation. Only Mary will see those things. And as Simeon says, it will be like a sword piercing her heart. She would be divided between loving her son the way any mother should and would and realizing he is not like any other son. He is God's son. He is the savior of the world. Even today, Jesus brings salvation, but he also brings division and pain. Sometimes it is to couples. Sometimes it is to larger families. Other times it is between friends. But amidst the gracious and glorious salvation that comes from God, humanity's heart is revealed and that results in pain. Some will see the glory of Christ and believe. Others will reject him and turn their backs and be against all who believe. In the end, Jesus does bring division to the world. That is to say, he divides everyone into two groups. Those who believe in Christ and experience salvation and those who do not believe in Christ and reject him and experience judgment. This morning, the most important question for you to ask is this. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? Finally, Luke shows us that as Christ is fulfilling The passing glory of the old covenant, he satisfies the hunger of faith. Jesus satisfies the hunger of faith. Luke finishes describing this scene in the life of the baby Jesus by telling us, verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. In Anna, we see Christ coming to fulfill Israel's hunger for God's presence. Israel's hunger for God's presence. This woman, Anna, which uh, is the Greek form of her Hebrew name, Hannah, like the woman at the beginning of 1 Samuel, she is amazing. Luke tells us her age, but he actually doesn't tell us her age. Uh, In in the text that I'm reading, the the translation I'm reading from, uh, it says that... uh, 
she was had a husband for seven years from when she was a virgin, meaning uh, she was a righteous woman. She married. Uh, she knew her husband for seven years, and then he died, and she was a widow until she was 84. But the, the, the original Greek is actually not that clear. That, that, that's one option. The other option is to say that she was actually widowed for 84 years. So, so take 84 and then add the seven years of her marriage and then add whatever many years she was alive before she was born, perhaps another 16 years. In other words, Luke is right. She is advanced in age, right? That, that, that's the point of what he's saying. She's old either way. And then we don't mean that disrespectfully. But the point is her unusual age coupled with her unusual godliness. She was widowed at a young age, and rather than try and find another husband or something else that we might expect that would have been normative in that culture, she embodies the spirit of all who were pious in Israel. She seeks after God. She longs for God. She, she goes to be in his presence day and night. Specifically, Luke says she stays in the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying. Why would she do that? Can't she do that at home? Because in the Old Covenant, the temple was the place of God's presence among his people. And she is desperate to be near God. Do you remember the Old Testament? Do you remember how in Exodus, the glory of the Lord was the sign of his presence among his people? So as they left Egypt and began to move out into the wilderness, heading to the promised land, we are told the glory of the Lord appeared as a cloud, uh, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that they might follow God. And God was saying to them, follow me for I am with you. I am in your midst. And then when the temple was, uh, well, the tabernacle first, and then the temple was first dedicated, the people saw all this blazing manifestation of the glory of the Lord as it came to settle into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the center of the temple, where only once a year the high priest might go in and stand physically in the presence of this glorious manifestation of God, offering the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. God is saying, worship me, I am with you. And for hundreds of years, there his presence remained. As his glory resided, shining brilliantly over the Ark of the Covenant in the heart of the temple. But over time, the people descended into idolatry and injustice and moral debauchery. You know the story. God would call prophet after prophet after prophet to call them back to himself. And then eventually, a young man who was preparing to enter the priesthood, God stopped and said, Nope. Doesn't matter what tribe you're from, you are going to be a prophet for me. You will speak my words to my people. His name was Ezekiel. And he has given a vision of the temple in chapters 8 through 11 of his prophecy. In this vision, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord in the Holy of Holies begin to shine bright as a thick cloud envelops that place. And then it does the unthinkable. It begins to move out of the permanent place of its residence in the Holy of Holies. It moves through the inner court to the very threshold of the temple. And the temple court, he, Ezekiel sees, is filled with God's glory as the air begins to, to hum and to ring as, as a myriad of angels' wings begin to descend upon that place, getting louder and louder. He says, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. The glory of God continues, moving slowly away from the temple's threshold, coming to rest on the back of angelic cherubim. And there it is escorted to the east gate of the temple, where the glory of the Lord is now posed to depart from the temple. It's interesting that here, Ezekiel makes the point that it is the Lord's glory leaving the Lord's house. Imagine what that meant for Israel. 
so sinful have they become that God is abandoning his prescribed place of presence and residence among his people. It's a heartbreaking scene where the glory of God doesn't just vanish. It slowly, slowly moves away, heightening not just the intensity of Israel's sin, but almost his reluctance to leave. For 400 years, his presence had remained in that place, and now it was gone. And though through Ezekiel and the other prophets, God would promise to return to his people, his glory would remain gone for the next 600 years. Can you imagine the first priest? The first high priest to go in after the glory departs. The one before him says, this is what you will see. This is what you will experience. And on the day of atonement, he goes in with the offering, and there's no glory. There's no Shekinah. There's no presence of the Lord. And he wonders what has happened. And for almost 600 years, every high priest every year experiences the same thing. God's presence is no longer at that temple. But then, unexpectedly, the glory returns. It comes not in a pillar of cloud. It comes not in the midst of cherubim and peals of thunder and glorious lightning. Instead, the glory comes in the form of a small baby named Jesus. Do you comprehend the wonder of this? For 600 years, God's manifest, glorious presence has been absent from the temple. And now it returns in the presence of Jesus Christ. These two peasants from the farthest reaches of Israel literally carry the presence of God's glory into the temple. And Anna sees it. And she knows what it means. Her hunger for God's presence has been fulfilled and therefore also her hunger for God's salvation. Her hunger for God's salvation. Anna is said to be a prophetess. That puts her among only four other women mentioned in the scripture with this rare title. She is given the privilege of speaking for God, and this is what we see her doing here. The very hour that Simeon is holding Jesus, singing a song of praise, God's Spirit brings Anna into the temple, and she sees them, and she knows what is taking place. And so in verse 28, Luke says, coming up that very, that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She gets everyone's attention, making sure that all who, like her, were hungering for God's salvation to know that the promise was fulfilled, that salvation had come through this child, Jesus. In this passage, we see so much of the Old Covenant. We see prayer and fasting in the temple. We see sacrifices being offered. We see laws being kept. We see the faithful longing and hoping in the promises of God. Yet as one scholar says, it is a picture of the world that would very soon begin to pass away. For in Christ, all of these things have come to fulfillment. Christ comes under the law to fulfill the law, not just to keep it, which he did, but to bring it to its intended purpose, to fulfill the law that it might pass away. Christ fulfilled in his coming the, the true temple. That's what he is, manifesting God's glorious presence among his people, offering the true sacrifice of himself that would bring full and final atonement for the sins of his people. God comes to fulfill God's promises, showing his faithfulness and his glory, bringing to rest the people who had longed and hoped for so long. Christ came and fulfilled the old covenant that full and final salvation might be known to all the peoples of the world. Therefore, this morning, the one thing that we should do is look to Christ and believe. 
look to Christ and believe. If you have never before received that salvation that he came to bring about through his death and resurrection. And having seen that salvation, having received it, then look to Christ, believe, and live. Live. As J.C. Ryle says, if they in this passage... If they, with so few helps and so many discouragements, lived such a life of faith, how much more ought we with a finished Bible and a full gospel? Let us strive like them to walk by faith and look forward, forward to Christ's return and the full consummation of our salvation in Him. Father, that is the prayer of our life this morning, that we would look to your Son and see the glorious salvation that you have brought. A glory that outshines the glory seen in the Old Covenant. God, may we look to Christ Christ and believe, and in believing, live in a way of joyous, faithful obedience to you, resting not in what we do to make ourselves right with you, but in what Christ has done to make us right with you. Father, we ask all these things for the sake of Christ and His glory. Amen.